Hi there. You're listening to the LLB podcast, the podcast for law students and young lawyers. My name is Johnny Nguyen, and I'll be your host today. Welcome to episode 17 of the podcast. Today's episode is about Indigenous Australia and Australians, and it explores the ways we can all contribute towards making the world a better, more inclusive place for First Nations people. We're joined today by Fallon Wankanin, a proud Naranga man who is the Inclusion Manager at ANZ, one of Australia's big four banks. Stay tuned to hear about Fallon's career journey, his tips for making the leap between regional to metro, the things we could do as individuals and organisations to better serve First Nations people, and the line between cultural appropriation and appreciation. All resources referred to in the episode are provided in the description, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Uh, it's Johnny here, and I've got Fallon with me today, Fallon Wanganin. So before I start with the rest of the podcast today, uh, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owner of the lands that I'm recording this episode on. So I'm in Sydney today, and I'm on the land of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. Before we kick off, I'll throw it to you, Fallon, as well, so you can uh, acknowledge your lands. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And I think, you know, acknowledgements are, are really important protocol um and it's great to see you know especially over um covid and um in the last couple of years it's definitely becoming a, a much more common practice um so you know really appreciate you opening with with that so yeah i would love to um acknowledge uh, the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples uh, of the Kulin nation of where i am here in uh, in melbourne in in docklands um been lucky enough to be living and working um, on this land for the last two and a half years and, and so appreciative of, you know, what I've been able to learn about the peoples and the history and the culture previous and, and ongoing. Um, and, and on that, I'd also like to acknowledge my people, uh, the Narunga people um, of the beautiful York Peninsula back in South Australia, um, and just acknowledging traditional owners of, you know, wherever all of your listeners are, are joining from today, um, and for those that are overseas as well, to any Indigenous peoples and, and traditional owners from, um, you know, any of your overseas listeners. So, again, um, you know, really appreciate you you kicking off with that, Johnny. Awesome. Thanks, Fallon. So, for context for everyone looking at your Fallon is an inclusion manager at ANZ, and as you've just heard, he's an Aboriginal man from Narunga country. Hoping I'm saying that right. I won't say much more there, though, because I think I'll, I'll throw it to you to sort of kick us off here. Fallon, could you tell us a bit about what you do, who you are, sort of your role generally here? Absolutely. So, um, yeah, as I mentioned, uh, Fallon Wanganin, proud Narunga man. So the Narunga peoples are from the York Peninsula in South Australia. So as I mentioned, although I now live and work in Melbourne, um, I consider my home to be uh, Moon to Bay on the York Peninsula. So um, for those wanting a geography lesson, uh, Moon to Bay is roughly two hours northwest of, of Adelaide. Um, so, you know, I was very lucky to grow up on country and I do get back um, to visit um, as often as I can um, as, as well. But as I mentioned, really love um, being here on the on the Kulin Nation um, in Melbourne. So, uh, yeah, like you said, inclusion manager um, at ANZ. So I'm lucky enough to 
uh, look after our traineeship programs for um, Indigenous people, so school-based and full-time. Um, I'm also, uh, as a part of my broader team, involved in our Reconciliation Action Plan, um, as well as our Refugee Workplace uh, work Placement Program, um, and also, uh, yeah, our graduates that sit in our Australia Retail and Commercial um, Division. So, uh, you know, all spaces that I'm, I'm super passionate um, about. And, and like I said, I have to pinch myself sometimes to think that, uh, you know, I work here and I get paid to, to do what I do. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Oh, it sounds like you wear a lot of hats and you've got your hands across a lot of different matters, uh, matters in such a role. Can you tell us what your career journey's been like so far, sort of getting there as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess, um, yeah, if you were to ask me in year 12 um, or tell me in year 12 that I'd be doing what I'm doing now, um, yeah, I probably would tell you that you're, you're crazy. Um, so like most students finishing high school, um, you know, my career of choice changed multiple times over year 11 and, and year 12. Um, and once I finished my exams in year 12, I, I kind of realised that, you know, study probably wasn't for me. Um, and all of my friends at the time had, you know, left school in years 10, 11 and 12 to undertake trades and, you know, they were all out working and earning money and, and doing all these things. And I kind of thought at the time that, um, that that was for me. So, yeah, after year 12, I went straight into work in the construction industry um, and I floated around there for a bit um, before scoring myself a role in, in mining. So um, Olympic Dam, which is in Roxby Downs in South Australia, I, I worked fly and fly out, um, driving trucks and, and operating machinery for about 12 months. Um, and then again, the, the lifestyle for a 19-year-old, two weeks on, one week off, 12-hour days, week-a-day shift, week-a-night shift, the lifestyle probably just wasn't what I was after. And, yes, the money was great, but, you know, I couldn't play sport. I was missing, you know, Christmases and Easters and all of my friends and families, 18th, 21st, 30th, uh, all, of these, all of these things. And, um, like I said, while the money was great, um, that wasn't kind of the driving factor um, for me. So I had actively, yeah, I guess been looking for opportunities to come back home um, and fortunately the district manager um, of my local ANZ, um, I was really good friends with his son growing up and he kind of gave me a call one day and said, hey, come into, you know, the ANZ bank. Um, uh, I'd love to just have a chat with you. And, you know, I'd known Adam um, a, a long time and, and thought, okay, um, I'll, I'll go up and see him. So on one of my, my stints off, I, I travelled up to... Um, to go and see him and he gave me a bit of a tour of the of the branch and introduced me to all the staff and we kind of went back to his office and he sort of said oh so what do you think and I'm like oh it's interesting I've you know never really even been into a, a bank before and um, he, he kind of said oh how would you like to work here um, which was a you know complete shock to to me um, would not have expected that um, one bit uh, and he said look big decision I'll, I'll give you to the end of the week to you know go and speak to your family and, and friends and, and come back to me on Friday. So again, um, me looking to get out of mining, um, a job opportunity coming up back home and something that I probably wouldn't have thought of before it just kind of worked out for me. So after talking to my, my family and my friends, I decided to, yeah, uh, have a crack and, and take it on. So um, yeah, I worked, uh, started on the traineeship um, and, and worked in that branch for 18 months and was lucky enough to get a permanent gig. Um, 
from there and, and I hung around in my local area for about four and a half years um, before deciding to relocate to Adelaide for more opportunities um, as, as well because when you're from a regional area um, yeah you know opportunities can be be limited um, and I've kind of gone as as far as I could go from um, I guess a seniority perspective because everybody that was ahead of me um, you know were really settled and, and it didn't look like they, they were going anywhere so it was either hang around and keep doing what I'm doing or move away and in search for, for more opportunities so um, yeah made the trek down to to Adelaide, to what I considered to be the big smoke uh, at the at the time, um, and, and worked in a couple of the bigger city branches um, across there as you know a, an assistant branch manager, um, and then yeah, eighteen months, uh, and then got a phone call from from Melbourne um, about an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander recruitment role. Um, obviously, uh, having already been in the bank for six years, I've made a lot of, you know, great connections and networks and, and people kind of knew where my passion and interests lie. So when this role became available, um, yeah, they sort of proactively reached out to me to say, hey, you know, we've heard a lot about you. We think you'd be great for this, you know, um, come in. We'd love to interview you. Um, and again, you know, just as timing would, would have it, I, I went through that process and was lucky enough to to be successful and um, picked everything up and, and moved from Adelaide to, to Melbourne um, to settle in and, and start in the in the Melbourne um, head office. And, you know, the the transition in, in coming across was difficult um, for, a you know, a country kid from a town of 5,000 people, literally the building I work in now has more than 5,000 people in it. So I guess it gives you great perspective to think there's more people in my building than there are um, in my hometown. But, you know, it, it was a no-brainer for me in, in just knowing that I could be in a role where I could support other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, get into employment and, and meaningful employment. Um, so, yeah, again, worked uh, in that role and in various capacities for two and a half years before scoring the gig that I'm in now, which is as the inclusion manager. So I'm about, I'm about five weeks into this role. Um, and again, when you're in a place like ANZ, um, it's so diverse. There are so many different opportunities. There's a long way from coming through at the most junior level, which I did to, you know, CEO. So you can literally take it um, as far as you want to take it. And, and I think I've certainly been lucky that, um, because of, you know, networking and working hard, um, opportunities just continue to um, present themselves and doors open. And, you know, I always feel like the stars align at the at the right time and everything sort of happens for, for a reason. So I, I consider myself, um, you know, very lucky um, to be able to, like I said, do what I do and have come across those opportunities um, at those particular times. And, you know, I've always been someone to say yes to, to things. And I think that's where doors continue to, to open as, as well. Um, and that's where, because of the, the opportunities that I've had and the career journey that I've had, um, if I can share that with other people out there from, from the community and, and they can, you know, do something similar to, to what I've done um, in regards to a career path and a career journey, then, yeah, I, I want to share that. Fantastic. That's an incredibly diverse journey. Even, I mean, I've taken a look at your LinkedIn and even I haven't quite believed out all of that background. So, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you shared that today. So I think I want to dive in on a couple of things you said there. So one thing that you mentioned was the fact that, you know, you, you came from a town that was 5,000 people and you now work in a, a building that has 5,000 people. 
what I wanted to get, I, I guess, get your take on here is what are your tips for, I guess, making that jump, going from that country town, going to a city? Because I imagine there are a lot of people out there, not, you know, obviously Indigenous people living in rural areas, but also a lot of everyone else living out in those rural areas, they're probably worried about this making this sort of jump. So do you have any advice for them on that front? Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, I think it, it comes back to your personality type and who you are as a person and, and really what you're wanting out of your um, career as well. And look, I would consider myself to be probably in a personal perspective, a, a bit of an introvert. Um, I'm, I'm quite independent. I, I like doing my own thing. I take a lot of information in before, um, you know, putting myself out there. I don't like being the, the centre of attention or, um, you know, big social group settings where, you know, I'm unfamiliar or, or I'm going into a room where I don't know anyone. But from a work perspective, I, I definitely don't have those same um, character traits where I think because it's work, I kind of do what I need to do to, to get by, um, not that it's necessarily something that I would do in, in my personal time. So I think depending on the individual, like I said, just if you don't have a go at something, um, you, you're never going to know. And, and I guess there's that fear of the unknown. But the way I always thought about it is I'll say yes to opportunities um, and if I don't like it or it doesn't work out or anything goes wrong, you can always go home, right? Um, home is always going to be there. Um, you know, you're always going to have the safety of your family and friends. But I think if you don't get yourself out of your comfort zone, um, there are so many opportunities that that you can miss out um, as well. And, look, I'm still a country person. Yeah, I'm still a country person at heart and I go home as as often as I can and I'm really lucky that the flight from, you know, Melbourne to, to Adelaide is an hour and a half. So when I do have that yearning or, or need to go home, I can kind of get back um, in, a, in a hurry. Um, but, you know, having the support of your family and friends and of your ex-colleagues and your new colleagues, I think is super important. Um, and, and yeah, I've had all of that. So the transition was quite easy for me. Yes, um, it, it is very daunting sometimes being in, in the big city. And like I said, even being in this in this building, um, but, you know, just by having that support around, um, you know, definitely helps. So like I said, for, for anyone out there who's unsure or thinking about it, you know, have a go and, and if it doesn't work out like I said you know you, you go home and, and you haven't lost anything at least then you'll know but it's well, like it happen, right? exactly exactly sure and you know what I, I guess I want to also hammer in on a similar point about transition again here but you know you mentioned that finishing high school you didn't think you were going to be a, a study person and you know even coming into that bank with um the district manager who's your friend's dad you you were you, you never thought about banking as a potential or not banking but working in a bank as a potential career path that might suit you so now that you've been there and you've made that leap to the other side do you think there are any misconceptions about the kind of person you need to be to work in a bank uh, and in order to take that sort of path? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think um, it's probably changed over time in regards to, you know, what we're, what we're looking for. Um, and, and I guess the everyday person's, you know, perception of a bank is even now when I tell people I work at ANZ, they go, oh, you know, what what branch are you in? Are you a teller? You know, do you do home loans or, or whatever? Because I guess the everyday person 
has that association with with what a bank is. I mean, obviously, behind the scenes or when you work in head office or in a more corporate role, it's so much more um, diverse um, than than that. And, and I think the traineeship opportunities obviously give people um, that insight to be able to come in and work 12 months in a role, um, get an accreditation um, on the side and, and get a look into, you know, what working at, at that was uh, at something like a bank was like. Like maths was never essentially, you know, my my strong suit uh, or whatever at school. And, uh, I mean, I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it either. So coming in, I was I was really concerned about what I thought working in a bank was, was going to be like as well. But, yeah, it was just a completely different um, experience. And I guess now when we're looking for people and, and I, you know, COVID and, and the last couple of years has definitely confirmed it, that in the past, if you didn't have any finance experience or you didn't have any banking experience, you would never get a gig um, in a bank. But now I guess like most places, we're, we're really um, looking for people that share our values, people that share the behaviours that we're after. If you're passionate and motivated um, and keen to get in and give something, you go, we, you know, you can be taught the technical skills, right, or, or the on-the-job skills, but you can't necessarily be taught, um, like I said, how to be motivated or, or to be passionate um, about something as well. So I think it is giving more people an opportunity who mightn't have had that uh, opportunity in the past and especially if I think about underrepresented groups and you know people from uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander backgrounds um, who would always thought oh I could never work in somewhere um, like a bank is all of those opportunities that are there now because you know we can teach you how to um, be a teller and, and you can be taught how to you know go through sales and um, all of these different um, things which I think is super important but again because there is um, an outside kind of perception of what that looks like. We're doing a lot of work to, you know, change that narrative around, you know, what what the everyday person's expectation um, of a bank is and, and really, um, you know, make sure that community knows, um, you know, what we're looking for and, you know, you don't. Yes, there are some roles that need technical aspects, but for the most part, you know, if, if you're keen and you're a good person and, and you're a good worker, you know, you, you can get your opportunity. Yeah, for sure. I think I think that's one of the misconceptions I've always had prior to getting any sort of job, right? I think our students usually place a lot more emphasis on technical skills, which now, now that I realise coming in, if you're coming in, especially at the entry level, you know, they expect that you don't necessarily have technical skills and that they can train you. But, the, you know, these soft values that you talk about, these values and these soft skills, they need time to develop. And so if you don't have them, it's quite rough for you to come out. But, you know, what? Let, let's pivot here. You've talked a bit about, um, you know, these vulnerable groups and especially Indigenous uh, people here. And so I guess the, the bread and butter of today's episode, which I forgot to mention, but was for reconciliation week here is looking at indigenous people here so i guess the broad topic here i want to dive into is looking at your role as an inclusion manager i wanted to get your insight on how other places other workplaces and other organizations can sort of recreate some of the inclusiveness that you've created so i guess to kick off this bit here how can we and looking you know at employees here and organizations people who have uh, that power to change how can we make workplaces more attractive and also more inclusive for Indigenous people uh, across the board here? Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, it's a 
It's a great question and I guess I don't think there is a, a perfect answer and I don't think there's an organisation out there that's, um, you know, doing it perfectly. It's, it's definitely a massive learning journey um, for everyone uh, and I think the, the, the key thing probably is is when we're doing things for community, um, we just need to make sure that there's that consultation kind of period there as well um, because often I think and, and what's happened in the past and what's been challenging in the past and we've seen hasn't work is that, you know, non-Indigenous people, although they mean well, they're, they're doing things and making decisions on behalf of Indigenous people without actually, you know, talking to people and, you know, finding out what you want and what are the challenges and what's working well. So, you know, people have these great ideas and, you know, want to get out there and want to help and, and do these really practical things. But when they get on the, on the ground, they realise, oh, you know, the people out here, this isn't necessarily anything that they want or they need or they're not having issues with that. Actually, the challenges that they're facing are, you know, X, Y and Z. So I, I think it's just and organisations are getting so much better at this, which is fantastic, but it's making sure that um, you've got external consultation. So what are the communities that you're, you're serving um, and just understanding, you know, what are the needs and building relationships there as well because I think, the, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community is all about relationships. So coming out once and saying, hey, this is what we're going to do for you, um, it's something that, you know, it just doesn't work. You need to get out there and, and understand who you're working with, like I said, and, and what are the wants and needs of the people there. And then using your resources that you've got, what are the skill sets that you've got, what are the people that you've got to be able to deliver um, on that. And then also internally is understanding who are your customers um, who are your employees? What are their experiences? What are they loving? What aren't they loving? Um, and, and understanding that as an organisation, when you're making decisions that are going to affect your Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander customers, suppliers, employees, is actually, you know, co-creating or validating information there as, as well. Because like I said, I think we can get so caught up in having these great ideas but there's got to be you know some form of, of consultation there as well and and I'm very conscious too so a lot of the time um you know I'm so lucky to be able to get involved in different conversations for initiatives for, for things and have people reaching out to me as well um but I always have to preface with saying you know, I'm one man with one set of experiences, one set of um, uh, opinions. You know, I don't speak on behalf of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at ANZ or all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia. So I think that that consultation has to be wide um, so that you can make sure that you're getting diversity of thought, diversity of opinion, um, and seeing what are the themes that are coming through on that um, and, and acting on those as a, as a starting point. And then, you know, it's ongoing, it's organic, it, it just grows from there. So I think, like I said, um, you know, talk to the Aboriginal and, and, and Torres Strait Islander people that um, you serve and that you work with um, and, and really work on um, starting from there. And, and once that conversation is, is ongoing, um, and started, like I said, it, it just builds um, from there. And then within the community as well, um, you know, you'll start to build your profile and, and reputation um, because, yeah, in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community, if you do something fantastic, everyone's going to hear about it and, and everyone's going to want to um, engage with you. And on the flip side, if, you know, you're doing something negatively, 
um, you know, you can be blacklisted. So it's super important to make sure that the dealings you have, um, you know, are, are positive and that you're being genuine um, about what you're doing as, as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think this idea of consultation is something that I think we're increasingly trying to do more generally. But my question here is that how do we do consultation right, I guess? Like, uh, there's different ways to consult. As you, I think as you've already flagged already, obviously consultation can't just be one or two people that you, you know, you don't think are going to give you a good answer. It has to be diverse and you have to get enough people to get some sort of meaningful idea of what's actually happening and what's representative. So do you have any other tips here on how you can do consultation well? Look, I think, like you said, there are so many different, um, you know, frameworks and strategies um, out there. So it's probably is, you know, really case by case is trying to understand what's the problem that we're actually trying to to solve here. Um, and, yeah, I guess making sure that, you know, you are talking to the right people and, and relevant people Um because if, if there are individuals that just because they are an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person doesn't mean that they, you know, understand policy or, or processes or your particular industry as well. So I think you, you obviously, and, you know, this is, this is probably really obvious as well, but making sure that that consultation actually aligns and the individuals that you're seeking out align with the work that you're trying to do to save that tokenism of going oh yep you know I, I know an aboriginal person at, at work um so i'm going to ask them about this that or whatever um when you know they may not be the uh, appropriate person um to be talking to um so i think you know just just understanding like i said what it is that you're actually um trying to do and, and trying to solve and i think just being genuine in your interactions as, as well is is so key um setting the scene early and and letting people understand what you're trying to do and actually why you're you're trying to do it as well. Um, because the person that you're then engaging with is going to say, hey, yep, I think I'm absolutely the right person um, to be speaking to. Or, look, this isn't in my wheelhouse, but I can introduce you to, you know, X, Y and, and Z person. Or would you mind if I bring across um, this person or that person to also engage in, in this conversation too? Um, because, again, we get caught up in assumptions. Um, so, you know, being genuine about what you're trying to do and actually asking the questions up front um, is going to save you time and effort in, you know, speaking to people that may not be the, the right fit um, as well. So, yeah, I think that transparency, you know, from early in the engagement is, is super important to making sure that, you know, the, the right people are, are in the room. Um, and like I said, word of mouth networks are, are fantastic. So when people hear about or know what you're trying to do um you know there are going to be reactive people that we're engaging with and then there are going to be people that are coming out proactively to say i heard about this how can i help or you should speak to to this person yeah those are fantastic tips i really do enjoy like this transparency that you talk about and i i think that's also part of building trust as well like i think that's the sort of thing you talk about when you talk about being genuine and being trustworthy and that sort of thing gets out. To sort of double, sort of like dive in on that last part you said there, though, in terms of people who want to help, right, um, a lot of the listeners are actually younger professionals and potentially students, right? So how can, I guess, graduates, you know, your younger professionals play a part in creating this sort of change, making 
workplace is more inclusive and potentially even a larger scale social change here. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, the amazing thing about um, younger people these days is, you know, the, the open-mindedness and, and everybody is, you know, very socially and environmentally um, conscious. And I think just because, you know, younger people have been coming through, the content that you get through the news and social media and um, curriculum at school is obviously very different to, you know, um, even like myself when I talk to my brothers who are in high school and I listen to, you know, the, the studies that they're um, undertaking and the stuff that they're learning, it's so different to, um, you know, what I was learning at school. And then, again, in speaking to, to my mother, um, what she learned was was so different um, as well. So I, I think the the... The, the key thing probably for younger people out there who are interested in in making change is self-learning um, because, again, you know, when it comes to Australian history as an example, a lot of people only know what they learned to, at school and if you haven't actively sort out this information um, or you get your information from the media, which can, you know, sometimes be, be negative um, as well, it's really hard to make a decision on, um, you know, what's right or, or what's wrong. So, uh, you know, I, I so encourage people to do your own learning. Again, there's so many amazing um, influences out there on, on social media, podcasts, books, documentaries, um, you know, immerse yourself in that um, and then share that with, with people around you as well. Um, you know, young people, just have this energy and this way with with words that they people want to come on the journey with them um, as well, right? So I think if you can be proactive in um, the information that you you take in and building your own cultural understanding and capability, and then sharing that with other people without necessarily being pushy um, either, because people will learn when they're ready to learn um, without necessarily. I don't think it's productive to you know, be telling people this and telling people that or, or telling them that they're doing something wrong. Um, because, again, you know, we're not out here trying to change the hearts and minds of absolutely everybody. Um, if you want to come on the journey with us, that's fantastic. Um, but it's too hard and there's so much work to do to be spending time and effort on people who who aren't interested or, or aren't ready to, to change yet um, either. So, like I said, for you know, your listeners out there um, that aren't interested, that are interested and, and just don't know where to start. Um, like I said, jump on Google, um, look up stuff on, on Spotify, um, type Aboriginal or Indigenous into Netflix or SBS On Demand. There's some really, really great content um, out there. Uh, and, yeah, I'll, I'll probably off the back of this, Johnny, I might just share um, some of my favourite resources with you as well that you may be able to post um, for, for people to get started too. Sounds fantastic. I know uh, in the chat you had with Forage a while back, you recommended Tales of Light, which I've seen, I've learned quite a bit about Indigenous culture just from uh, the stories that were told there. To take you back a little bit though, um, what, I wanted to like uh, thought about a follow up question actually, or, or on the consultation point, and I don't know to what extent you're able to share, but would you be able to share an example of a time that you or even ANZ generally has consulted effectively, and that's actually caused the change in your minds on something or how you've done something and made better? Yeah, for sure. Well, I think um, you know probably without going into 
into too much detail. Um, what we've recently set up um, is uh, a reference group of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, employees um, from the bank. Because, as I mentioned, I've been really lucky in, in working in, um, you know, my identified roles and um, working in head office to be privy to conversations um, that, that are taking place in regards to, you know, initiatives that we're trying to roll out or policy that we're trying to change as it relates to, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, and it just made me realise that, again, you know, I'm, I'm one person um, and, and I think it's super important for us to give our employees an opportunity to have a voice um, in, in what we're, you know, trying to do. So, um, yeah, recently, uh, well, I guess in the last two years, we've set up a group of, you know, like-minded individuals. The group is very diverse as well, so we wanted to make sure there was gender balance, so we've got a 50-50 split of male and female. Um, we've got a range of, of job grades as well, so from people who are at entry-level um, positions right through to senior managers, um, parts of the business um, to make sure that, again, there are people there, and obviously locations as well. So we wanted to make sure, like I said, that the group was as diverse as possible so that when we are having conversations about things, um, you know, we are getting all aspects. And, again, that helps when people from different backgrounds, different parts of the country, different working experience when we can agree on particular things, it obviously shows those themes and obviously where we do have a difference in opinion, which is, you know, super um, healthy and, and helpful, it allows us to have deeper conversations around what we're doing. So what's been fantastic is as we um, get ready to launch our next reconciliation action plan at the end of the year, um, again, with our commitments, where there are things that are going to be affecting our employee population um, is we're able to, um, you know, take ideas um, to this group of individuals and seek feedback and, and co-create things, which I think has just been a, a massive help because, like I said, in the past, um, it's probably been an, and at no one's fault uh, where, you know, people who have sat on this um, committee or, or group um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous um, have kind of just been able to do things or put things in place based on, you know, expertise and, and what we think, what we think, adding this dimension of, you know, feedback and consultation from, you know, the people that we have out there on the ground, um, you know, has just been so invaluable um, and, and just to get, you know, those ideas and things that we mightn't have thought of, um, you know, previously because we haven't had that lived experience yeah, we, we just think it's it's holding us in, in great stead and, and as we look to, you know, delivering on um, and achieving our commitments over the next three years, um, you know, having this group of, of people that are really driving and, and having an impact on that, um, you know, has, has been amazing. So um, I guess that was one of the tips I gave earlier and, and if there are any um, individuals working in a similar space to me at, at different organisations, if you're not doing this already, um, you know, start to scope out the work um, and I promise you, you won't be disappointed. Yeah, fantastic. I think it sounds like the reference group a reference group is a really good way to sort of co-design ideas and really get, I think, deep engagement in there from a, a wide and diverse pool of people. So I, I think that's a really good idea, and I think organisations are starting to adopt that sort of thing and should be if they haven't already. 
I guess to follow up on, you know, you mentioned the wrap and that, that, that got me thinking, right? So if we talk about larger scale, you know, business folks here, not just how can individuals help, but what do you think here? And this, you know, acknowledging this is your view as one man, as you said, but how can businesses play a part in larger scale change on Indigenous issues? How can they move the wheel forward here? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, the wrap is the perfect example of of that and, and how that works. And look, wraps aren't for um, everyone um, and, and they're not going to suit absolutely every business um, out there with the formal structure that a, that a wrap takes. Um, you know, I personally think that, that they're fantastic, but I know of a lot of businesses out there that it just, um, you know, doesn't suit, but they can use the principle of a wrap or, you know, an Indigenous action plan or whatever to, um, you know, set themselves some some boundaries and some commitments that, you know, they want to work towards to continue to build capability and uplift um, and make sure that they're supporting, you know, their communities that they serve in in different ways. Um, but I think the, the RAP, obviously, the framework and the structure, Reconciliation Australia have done some amazing work, um, you know, to put things um, together and come up with those set commitments um, as well that are going to help businesses of different size and whether they start at Reflect, which is, um, you know, the very early stage of a, of a wrap right through to the top level of, of Elevate, um, there are continual ways of, you know, getting better. And like I said, no organisation out there uh, is absolutely 100% perfect. And what does perfection look like? You know, I, I definitely don't know the answer to that either, but um, obviously the, the organisations um, that sit at that Elevate level um, are the benchmark and, you know, they've, they've been doing things right for a long time and they sit at Elevate level for, for a reason um, because of the impact that they have on um, communities as, as well. So, um, yeah, look, I, I think they do the work for you in regards of, you know, setting out your, your strategy and the, and the framework um, and then it's up to you to be able to, you know, validate and work towards and, and confirm the commitments um, on there, which, again, cover a whole range of, um, you know, different ways of, of supporting, whether it's through, um, you know, procurement or employment or, um, like for us, you know, um, anti-discrimination or financial inclusion and, and well-being. So, um, you know, you can really tailor it. While it's the same across the board, you can obviously tailor it to your business need um, as, as well. And I guess that's the great thing in working with Reconciliation Australia is you can, um, you know, give and take um, from, from there as well. So, again, for any organisations out there that um, uh, are unaware of, of what a wrap is, um, you know, I would definitely jump onto the Reconciliation Australia website and, and have a read and even catch up with a representative from, from Reconciliation Australia to talk about, you know, how that might, um, how that might work for, for you. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. I'll, I mean, I will chuck up the links uh, in the post and also in the video itself. But uh, I think that's great advice. I think often, as I've said so far, we often don't know where to start. And the fact that there's an organisation like Reconciliation Australia that you can, I'd say, like pretty much like no strings attached, come to and just go, you know, I don't know how to do do this. I don't know how to make any effort on this, but I want to try. And there are avenues to support on that dimension. I think that sort of wraps up 
of this part. And I guess the next segment here I want to talk to you about is probably more general knowledge questions about Indigenous culture. And, you know, definitely questions I've had. And I haven't even really briefed you on this because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing something that I'm about to question right now. But first one, and I think really big one here for me that's generally been a thing, Where's the line between, I guess, cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation, right? Like, can, can I call what we're having a yarn? Or I, I know you, you mentioned uh, the word for thank you in your language recently. And, you know, I've sent it back to you. Is, is that appropriation? Is that appreciation? The fact the fact that I'm wearing this tie, right? Like, it's uh, an Indigenous pattern tie designed by an Indigenous artist. But, you know, where's the line? How do you fit? Again, acknowledging that one man again and I think most people all people are different and we should probably always check but what, what's your view here yeah absolutely and I think you know that last comment that you made then around checking is I think super um, important and and I find and, and you mentioned this in, in an earlier thing that we were talking about as well as the fear of not knowing will often just stop people from doing, engaging, asking because they're scared that, you know, they're going to say something wrong or say something offensive. Um, but I think as we've talked about, it's probably a theme of, you know, most of the, the conversation that we've had here today is, you know, being genuine. And I think as an Aboriginal person, I can tell when I'm engaging with someone if they're being genuine um, or, or not. Um, and, and again, you know, we've known each other what the last two years um, and, and have stayed in touch, uh, you know, via LinkedIn and, and whatnot. Um, and I think, you know, the curiosity that you show um, and the genuine interactions that we've had and questions that you've asked around what you're wanting to do is really easy for me to, to pick up on. Um, and again, today, you know, the, the fact that you've taken the time and effort to have your, have your badge on and, and wear that tie, um, you know, it's, it's just fantastic uh, to me as, as someone. And I think, like I said, the, the genuine aspect of it, I don't think you're going to, to offend anyone. And if you're going into an interaction, it's often a good way to start to, you know, find out about this individual and the same way that we started this conversation was, you know, tell me a little bit about you, who are you as a person? And I think um, like you do with anyone, you're then going to be able to gauge, okay, um, you know, this might be appropriate. This is not the language piece. I love it. Uh, my mum's a linguist and, you know, when I see other people using the language and, again, as long as they're doing it in a genuine way and, and they're genuinely trying to learn, I think it's fantastic. Calling this a yarn, this is absolutely a yarn and, and one of the best ones that I've had in, in a long time. And, um, again, when I see non-Indigenous people around at, at work, um, you know, wearing different pieces of, of clothing and, um, and, and apparel and, like I said, badges and, and pins and ties and, and whatnot, I think is also awesome. And, and, and most of the time when you're buying these things, um, they will tell you whether it's ally-friendly um, or not as well. And, and, again, if you're unsure, ask. Um, the, the best way to go about anything is, is by asking because, again, if you're being genuine about it, you, you're definitely not going to um, offend anyone. But I think most, you know, retailers now are, are pretty good with saying, um, you know, this is something that's, that's ally-friendly um, as, as well. So, you know, um, the, the genuine aspect of things for me, um, I love 
teaching people around, you know, my culture and, and whatnot. And I think if people are taking a, taking a vested and genuine interest in that, you know, I could continue to, to talk about it. But, you know, I, I think you can always gauge when somebody's not being genuine or in it for the wrong reason or, you know, being a bit of a smart aleck about something, which would then, um, you know, stop you. But, but I would say, like I said, from my opinion, um, and if I think about my family and, and friends as well, is, you know, nobody would have an issue with somebody approaching them and, and genuinely asking a question about, you know, what's okay, what's not okay, what am I comfortable with um, as well. And, again, in the lead-up to our conversation before we started recording, you know, you set the scene by asking, is there anything that's off-limits? Um, is there anything you're not comfortable with, et cetera, which, you know, is, is the perfect way to, to go about it? Definitely. And, you know, I think you're right in pointing out that the theme of most of the conversations today has just been, if you want to know, you should probably ask, right? Like, you know, businesses, consult on your policies and what you're doing. People uh, Ask, ask about whether something you're doing is uh, appropriate, if it's offensive or not. And I think most people, for the most part, take it take it as a, a good sign when someone does ask rather than just doing it and getting it wrong, right? I think for once it's one of those things where, you know, asking for forgiveness might actually not be better than permission, right? Yeah. So I, I think that, that, that's probably, if you would take away one thing today, I think that would probably be it and you nailed it. Like, mm-hmm. uh, if you're not sure, ask. Um I guess for, for me then, like last one here on the substantive part of the podcast, but is there anything that, you know, there's the one thing out there that you think people should know about modern Aboriginal culture that they don't know? It's a good, it's a good question. Um, I, I think probably there's a, an IATSIS map on, on Google, um, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with this or your listeners are familiar with this, but it actually just shows how diverse um, Aboriginal culture in Australia is. And, and it's a, a colour-coded map and it shows all of the different um, language groups. And, and I think um, I had one stuck up in the office here at, at one stage and it was a fantastic conversation starter um, because I think, again, people, if they haven't um, done any on ongoing kind of cultural capability, awareness, um, competency, learning, can blanket approach Aboriginal people, um, whereas, you know, it's such a diverse um, group and a lot of places out there um, still practice um, a, a lot of places have lost but are doing revivals um, as well. So I think it's probably just for people to, to be aware that, um, you know, being like I'm a, an Aboriginal man from, the, you know, the York Peninsula in South Australia, and, yes, I live and work here in Melbourne now, but the way that, um, you know, the, the people from the Kulin Nation here go about it, versus you know back home is is completely different around you know dreaming and beliefs and practices and hierarchy and all of these kinds of things so it's probably just for people to know that you know aboriginal groups are so 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 different it's it's probably as a comparison i guess for for people it'll be like europe right where it's it's a small country all these countries are really close together but once you cross that border um you know things are very different um, and, and I think Aboriginal culture is absolutely the same. And like I said, while there are, same as with, you know, any kind of 
you know, cultural civilization. There are similarities in the way that we do things, but there are also um, a lot of differences and, and everywhere is unique. So, um, again, what I'll do is, is I'll uh, share the link to that um, map with you or share an image of that map for you to share with the, with the listeners. But I think I'm um, just making them aware that, you know, uh, it is so different um, and, and people are still practising and, and everyone's on a different journey because um, some of these, you know, cultures and, and groups have been ongoing for, you know, the last 60,000 years, whereas some were lost and, and are now just being found. So it's, you know, it's really cool to be able to um, learn about, you know, where people are at and, and what they're doing. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, actually. I think... At least for me, weird moment, like embarrassing to admit, but the first time I went to India, I was really surprised that all the different states were that different, right? Like they had different languages between them, often different cultures, different practices. And, you know, I came back and I was like, wow, okay, India's not just one big block of people that, that were quite homogenous. It's, you know, however many states there are that split apart. And we realized, like, looking at these sorts of maps, I think I've seen what you're talking about. Equally, like Indigenous Australia is not just one homogenous block of people that, you know, somehow just coalesce. Like, they were very much different tribes that had different ideas, practices, rituals, everything about it. So I think that's a fantastic tip to end on. So I guess that wraps up our substantive discussion. And I might just ask you a couple of questions about how listeners can connect with you and what, what, what sort of ideas you're working on. So I guess, you know, first out here, if any listeners do want to connect with you, how can they do it? What's the best platform? LinkedIn, yeah. uh, I don't know, anything else you're on, etc. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, well, it's funny, last year um, I took a social media hiatus. Um, so I'm not on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or, or TikTok or, or anything like that um, anymore. Being here in Melbourne in, in lockdown and, you know, spending so much time um, on my phone, uh, I think it was just a good opportunity for me to to take a step back and, and get rid of those platforms. And, yeah, I think, you know, nearly 12 months now with, without them um, and I don't necessarily miss them and, and haven't looked back since, which is fantastic. But, look, I'm very active on on LinkedIn like yourself um, and, and I love connecting with, with people. Um, I try to share... Um, and engage with as much content um, as I can throughout, you know, the the week. So uh, anybody out there, and, and Johnny, I'm sure you'll be able to, I'm, I'm comfortable with you, you know, um, tagging me or sharing the URL to my LinkedIn. I'm happy for any of your listeners to reach out. And if they're just interested in connecting and, and following um, the activity, that's fantastic. If you want to send me a message and introduce yourself, um, please do. I always respond. Um, and if you want to work together in, in some capacity, like I said, I'm, I'm always interested and, and open there too. So, um, yeah, catch me on uh, on LinkedIn and, um, yeah, hopefully uh, you, you enjoy what you see. Fantastic. Not on TikTok, but, you know, LinkedIn <laughs> is a close second. So you're still quite available and I think people will appreciate that. So at this point here, like, what sort of initiatives are you, are you working on here? And like, you know, I guess, what can the listeners really connect with you and potentially talk about? Any ideas that you're exploring, any projects that are happening, et cetera? 
Yeah, sure. So I guess, um, like I said, I'm working in our traineeship space at the moment. So we're always looking at different ways of, you know, improving those programs and, and connecting with communities out there. Um, and I think I mentioned during this conversation as well, we're currently working towards our next uh, reconciliation action plan, which we'll be launching um, towards the end of this year. And, and obviously, um, you know, we love to celebrate um National Reconciliation Week, um, and, and we've got some really cool things planned um, internally and externally for that. Um, NAIDOC Week, uh, again, in the middle of the year, um, and any sort of other kind of key milestones um, and events as, as well. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, I've been involved in the employment space here. Um, so, you know, again, always happy to connect with people um, and, and look at, you know, what are we doing and um, is it best practice and, and how can we do things better or, or differently as, as well? So, yeah, look, um, like I said, I'm, I'm involved in different things in my own community and, um, uh, and, and take interest in what other people are up to as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm very open if it's not anything directly linked to, to work and somebody wants to, to chat about, like I said, um, you know, don't hesitate to, to flick me a LinkedIn message and, and we can have a chat. Yeah, fantastic. I think a lot of people will be keen to have a yarn. So you mentioned the trainee program, actually, and I know that ANZ's um, internship program is coming up as well around mid-year. So can you tell us a bit about both of those, the trainee program and the uh, internship program? Yeah, absolutely. So um, our traineeship programs, um, we work with group, uh, group training organisations externally um, and provide opportunities um, across our branch network across Australia. So we've got two um, different types of programs. So we've got the full-time um, traineeship program, which again is entry level um, where individuals are able to come through and, and get an opportunity to um, have a go at a bank. Like I said, I started in... Um, in one of those traineeship roles and that was my foot in the door at the bank and now I manage the program which is like I said it's crazy to have kind of come full circle in in that regard um and then yeah we have a school-based traineeship program as well so basically students that are in year 11 and, and year 12 um get an opportunity to over their high school and work one day a week um in their local branch and during school holidays um you know where they're around the place and they're keen to work more they can pick up extra hours and again walk away with um, experience, ANZ on their resume and, and a certificate um, as well and where those individuals are keen to um, stay on, um, you know, we'll always try and accommodate people as best as possible and look for opportunities, whether that be with ANZ or, or elsewhere, um, to, to help them go in with that if, if that's something that they're, they're super interested um, in as well. So, again, um, there's always opportunities uh, around the place and they're normally posted on um, the the general channels. So, so keep an eye out if um, you do fit into any of those buckets. Um, and then, yeah, we've got our um, uh, summer internship and, and graduate program as well. So our graduate recruitment um, has already finished for um, our 2022 cohort, uh, but the summer internship program applications and campaign will start um, mid-year um, as well. So uh, again, there's there's all sorts of different parts of the bank that um, you can go into. And, and again, the team haven't been necessarily concerned with, you know, what you've studied or um, where you volunteered or, or your resume and, and whatnot. 
while all of that's fantastic um, and, and the experience are all oral positive, um, you know, if again, if you're interested in something and you want to give it a go and, and we can tell that, you know, your behaviours and values align with, with what we're looking at, you know, we'll give you that um, opportunity as, as well. So, again, I would encourage your listeners, don't think that you have to have studied, you know, banking or finance or business um, to get a, a, a job at ANZ because, you know, we've got people from um, sciences and journalism and, you know, medical backgrounds and all sorts of um, different uh, disciplines that, that kind of come in and, um, you know, have they star and, 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 and they love it. So, um, again, keep an eye out for um, those opportunities when the mid-year internship um, applications open and, um, yeah, our graduate applications, are, again, will, will probably start um, early next year. Yeah, fantastic. I remember um, I actually went through the, in, the from internship process and that's, that's actually how we met, oddly enough. But uh, on your comment about, like, not actually necessarily needing these deep technical backgrounds, Oddly enough, I, I was probably under the impression that you needed to either study finance, accounting, actuarial studies, or like some, some sort of like deeply math-based degree to get any sort of work in banking. But I remember um, I actually applied for the institutional banking stream, which, you know, I'd say it's like it's at least in the intermediate level of like technicality of all, all the roles. And uh, I was interviewing with Richard Wong in, uh, you know, the M&A space, I think. And I was, he asked me straight up, he's like, you know, and notice your transcript, like, not a ton of, like, math subjects, um, you know, do you, how, how you would match. And I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I think I'm generally okay, but nothing nothing too advanced. Like, is that a problem? But, like, it's laughed. He's like, you know, I think you need to understand general concepts. You, you don't need to be scared of maths, but uh, you also don't necessarily need to be an actuary or, like, a math, uh, have a master's in maths. And, I mean... From my experience, at least, the people were very friendly in all these interviews. Like, I think ANZ for me was quite a highlight in that interview journey. So I remember the two exercises we did. It was, uh, I think, a, a panel interview with Richard and uh, forgot other person's name. But uh, And there was a practical exercise where we were engaging in, I think it was basically a mock sales pitch. And, I mean, I, I, it was one of those interviews where I came out and I was thinking, I feel like I've performed relatively well. The environment was quite friendly and I've actually been reassured that my lack of deep math skills is not necessarily a problem. So, I mean, sh shout out to you and shout out to the team at ANZ generally. It's It's been uh, still one of like my most memorable interview experiences across the board, having applied for a ton of them. So uh, I highly recommend applying to ANZ if you're thinking about it, even if you're not necessarily a math genius yet. <laughs> Amazing. Well, obviously, you know, you you did star um, throughout that, and, and I'm still spewing every day when I see uh, all the successes that you have that you didn't come across to to ANZ. But you know, we all knew off the back of that interaction with yourself that you know you were going to um, do big things, and and you have not disappointed um, so far. And, and like I said, it's been so good to to keep in touch with you. But I guess you know, to your point is. The interview processes can be daunting, right? So we're not out to get anyone. We're, we're trying to make um, our candidates feel as comfortable um, as possible and we want to remove all barriers and blockers because, you know, we're, we're not out to 
to get you. We want you to come in and, and perform at your best um, as as well. So it's definitely for us. We want to take out that scary formalities, and we we try to make the the processes you know um, free flowing and and easy to to go through um, as as possible. And and again, like you said, there's the role play, um, and then some behavioural questions, and then some you know 360 feedback and questions were that you've got for um, you know our our you know people leaders in the in the business that are invested and, and come to those interviews too um yeah so you know it's it's great to hear that you know your experience was a positive one and you know what we're trying to do um sounds like it's it's working as well so you know that's that's awesome honestly now that you mentioned it, the 360 feedback was actually one of the standouts for me because i think for a couple of reasons here right i think as a job seeker at times you know you're applying for all these different programs and Generally, like, I feel like as a job seeker, you expect to get a decent amount of feedback if you're at, let's say, the assessment center stage. Like, you know, if I get rejected by the online application where I've put my name in and, like, I've instantly been rejected, I don't think I'm expecting that much. But, you know, by the time you've invested a couple of rounds and you've gone through the motions and you're at that assessment center stage, you do expect, like, a bit more feedback. And I know that some organizations aren't necessarily intending to they sort of give feedback that's not quite targeted. And, you know, it's obviously been through the rounds, it's been through approvals, it's, you know, four months later. And by the time you get it, you don't really remember what you did anymore. But, you know, like 360 feedback was on the spot. Uh, you know, Richard turned around and was like, you know, these are the things we liked, here are the things we thought you might have been able to improve on, give more details on, et cetera. And at least for me, it wasn't just the feedback, but it was the fact that it revealed this underlying culture of, continuous improvement right like i think there are places that are like oh um we love feedback and improvement but then you don't see them you know sort of like instinctively taking down notes and then giving feedback because you know you realize they're not used to it whereas it very much was like inbuilt into the process like richard was like yep you know done a ton of these here are the things we like etc and to me that was really positive friend like it was very much a confirmation that anz did have that underlying culture where everyone does give feedback and it isn't just something that's being put out there for lip service, but it's something that it looks like everyone actually does. Yeah, amazing. And again, you know, it's great to get that validation and feedback from yourself as someone who's gone through the, the process um, because we're always looking to do things better and be innovative. And if we can see themes from our process that aren't working for people, then why would we continue to, to do that? So for us, it's really important to ask for that feedback at key stages so that we can actually um, act upon it for, for people. So, you know, it's it's definitely, um, you know, really important to us um, because we want to build it with our customers, right? Like who are the people that we're serving? And if it's not working for them, then why would we, um, you know, continue to do that? And over the course of the, you know, couple of years that I was in the program, it was just fantastic to see those improvements and changes come off the back of, you know, our candidates and what our candidates were saying that they loved. Um, we continued to do and, and made sure that if there were ways to do that better, that was great. What didn't they like or, you know, what would they like to see that we weren't doing? And then, you know, we can build that into our pipeline for, you know, what's next for us. Fantastic. Well, look, I think that, that wraps it up there. I think I've taken enough of your time, but Fallon, thanks again for coming on today. And Thanks for sharing so much insight. Like, I've learned a lot about Indigenous culture and driving organisational change from our chat. And I'm hoping that all the listeners will come out listening to this and get, again, a lot of value as well. So thanks for your advice. Thanks for your knowledge. And thanks for being so generous with your time.
No, mate, anytime. I've got so much time for you. Like I said, since we've um, been connected over the, the last couple of years, it's, you know, been amazing to um, chat to you, you know, every now and then and um, exchange messages. Um, and I guess, you know, I'm so grateful that, you know, you thought of me um, in regards to to doing this and I'm absolutely more than happy to to share. And, you know, like we've said multiple times, I'm, I'm just one man, but, um, you know, hopefully what I've been able to, to share, you know, people find useful. And if anyone has any feedback for me or, or like I said, wants to engage, please um, don't hesitate to, to reach out. But no, I'm super thankful of, of your time um, as well, mate.